Well, good morning, everyone. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 2, so if you want to have your Bibles uh, open and ready there in Matthew 2. There's the story of a CEO of a startup company that um, there was a day and time where the CEO could be a part of all of the hiring, the interview process when they hired new employees. But as the company continued to grow, it, it got to a point where he could no longer be there for each and every one of those interviews, but he still wanted to make the final hiring decisions. And so what he did was he had others in the company who would do the interviews, and then he asked them to submit a one through 10 ranking of whether they endorsed or didn't endorse this potential hire. And so he implemented the policy, and over the first few months, he found out that almost all of the responses he got were sevens. And the problem is that sevens he didn't feel like were very helpful because a seven was enough to say, yeah, I think you probably should hire this person, but seven's also low enough to say, well, if it goes wrong, I can just simply say, well, that's why he was only a seven as a person to hire. And so the CEO came up with an idea and a plan. He continued the one through 10 strategy, but he made a new rule. You are not allowed to give a report of a seven. And what it did was it forced people because there's something psychologically that happens when you have to put an eight or higher means I wholeheartedly endorse this person. Or if you have to do a six or lower, you're saying there's something about this person that I think that we should be overlooking. And what was a part of the genius of what the CEO did was he, he was trying to take away this middle ground, this kind of lackadaisical safe territory where you don't really have to commit either way. And ironically, I think that the Gospels, and I think that Jesus in his teaching in a very similar way, forces us to take out the middle ground. The Gospels are saying seven is not an option for what you can do with Jesus. There is no middle territory. In fact, in Matthew, Jesus says these words in Matthew 10, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and one's foes will be members of one's own household. Those are some pretty shocking and challenging words, aren't they? That at a Thanksgiving dinner, Jesus is saying, when the topic comes up, what do you think about Jesus? There will be some who say, I believe he is the Messiah. And there's others who will say he is crazy, but there's nobody who's going to say, well, I go both ways with Jesus. He's forcing a decision. You are for him or you are against him. Using the language that we'll find in Matthew chapter two, there are but two options for Jesus. Number one is to accept and to pay him homage or to worship him. And the other is to reject. And persecute him. So before we read Matthew 2. We need to remember from last week. That Matthew is introducing us to Jesus. Matthew chapter 1 is saying. Here is who Jesus is. We have learned that Jesus is the Messiah. We have learned that he is the son of Abraham. We have learned that he is the son of David. We have learned that he is Emmanuel. God with us. And so Matthew chapter 2 then is going to ask the question. So what are you going to do about that? And there are going to be choices in terms of how we respond to Jesus' identity. So Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem. And we're going to take a little bit of a detour here for a minute 
and we're going to talk a little bit about storytelling. One of the things the storytellers know is when you tell a story, everybody is going to be making an empathetic choice. There is in every story, there is somebody who you want to succeed. You want them to avoid danger or trouble. And that's the person who you're rooting for as you're hearing the story. And then there's the other people that you don't care if they fail. You don't care if they go to jail. In fact, sometimes you hope something bad happens to them. Think about this. Scrawny little kid, cute little guy's walking home from school. And a big bully comes up to him and he says, if I ever see you in this neighborhood again, who are you empathetic with? Are most of you like, I sure hope that bully beats him up. If there is, go see a counselor because something's wrong with you. The empathetic choice is you don't want that scrawny little kid to get beat up by the bully because you empathize with him. See, one of the challenges we have in reading the Bible today is we often make our empathetic choices on the basis of the world that we know is described in the Bible but not the world that people would have lived in in the first century. So if I were to say the word Samaritan, most of you would think, oh yeah, Samaritan's good. Yeah, they're good people because we have the story of the good Samaritan. If I were to say the name Osama bin Laden, how many of you get warm, fuzzy feelings? However you feel about the name Osama bin Laden is the same way that most Jews would have felt about the word Samaritan. And so as we read text, we want to make sure we make the right empathetic choices because sometimes what happens is the people who we never thought we'd empathize with are the very people that we end up empathizing with. And I think that's what's happening in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, as we are introduced to these wise men from the East. And as Jews would have first read that, they would have been shaking their head with scorn and saying, wise men from the East. Wise men, of course, come from the east, which means that they are Gentiles, a.k.a. pagan, a.k.a. anti-God, a.k.a. the dogs. We are introduced to these men from the east who have this profession that is called wise men. The Greek word is magos, which most transliterator you may have seen transliterate as the magi, magi. And so these are people, I think what's happening here is we're describing those who are astronomers, because they've been watching the stars and the stars have been indicating, pointing them in the direction of Jesus. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, anytime astrologers are mentioned in the Old Testament, there either two things happen with them. Number one, they're made fun of. They're, they're, people in the New Old Testament will mock those who are astronomers. Or number two, it is a forbidden practice of God. So when you put a Gentile who is an astronomer together, you're not expecting anything good to come of these people and of their actions. You shake your head. You have spite in your voice and you say the wise men from the East. By the way, just in case you've ever listened to any Christmas carols, we don't know that there were three wise men. We know there are three gifts, um, but I think there's possibility that there could be more people who do three gifts or there could be less people who do three gifts. It's like the number of bags that are checked on an airplane. Do you think if you counted the number of bags, that's the exact number of passengers? No. So we don't know how many they are. Um, also, you may have heard that these are the three kings from Orientar. There's nothing in the text that indicates they are kings. They are wise men who come from the east. And yet they come in verse 2 asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. Their astrology gets them only so far. 
See, what happens is they, 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 they follow the star. The star somehow in some way leads them to Jerusalem. And then they're looking at each other and saying, where do we go from here? And they say, I don't know. They look at the other guy. I don't know. And they don't know what to do. What they do realize is what they need is some now specialized knowledge to be added to their general knowledge that got them in the right way. And they think, who would know where the king of the Jews was to be born? And so they conclude with their limited knowledge, well, surely Herod, who is the king of Judea, he would be the person who knows. And so they go and they ask Herod, do you know where this child is to to be born? Herod says, I have no idea, but I think I know who to ask. He asks the very same people that all of the people of Israel would say, these are the ones you need to ask. And he asks the chief priests and the scribes. These are the people who know the word of God. If God has revealed where this child is to be born, you go and you ask those who are at the top of the religious totem pole. And here it goes and he asks them. He doesn't know, but they, of course, do know. And they tell him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judea. And from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people. And what do you imagine should happen next? These chief priests, these scribes, the the people who specialize in knowing the scriptures have heard that there is born in Bethlehem. These wise men come and, and they have followed a star, which I could imagine someone thinking of numbers 24, 17, that said a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And if there was even a hint of a possibility, don't you think it'd be worth the six-mile walk down to Bethlehem just to confirm if the Messiah has been born? But what do they do? They do nothing. They have been entrusted with everything that was needed to bring both themselves and the people of God to the Messiah. And yet they do nothing. These are people who have the right answers, the right knowledge, but they won't respond in a faithful way. I think this is what Paul is talking about in Romans 3, 1 through 2, when he says, what advantage has the Jew? And he'll go on verse 2 to say, much in every way. For in the first place, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. They had the roadmap. They had the pathway. They had the way to find this Messiah when he came. And it is the wise men who know they don't have access to that specialized information. And they rely on these Jewish insiders to give them the information. And you would expect when they look in the rearview mirror, someone's following them on the way down to Bethlehem. But these people have the word of God. But they are not obedient to the word of God. There's a huge difference between having knowledge and being obedient to what you know. I mean, we live in a time where we have more Bibles in circulation than ever before in history. In the advent of the internet, we have access to more Christian information than we've ever had. But does that make us faithful? Faithfulness is on the basis of being obedient to what we know to be true as revealed in Scripture. And these chief priests... These scribes have all the information, but they do nothing. So what happens? Despite the dis- disappointing response of the religious leaders, Matthew 2:11 says what the wise men do. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down 
and they paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. It is not the king of the Jews that worships Jesus. It is not the chief priests who worship Jesus. It is not the scribes who worship Jesus. It's the Gentile, wise men from the East. And Matthew begins a theme that will continue throughout his gospel, that Jesus is the Messiah for all people. For those who on the basis of faith respond to his claims of being the Messiah. There's no longer the exclusivity of this Messiah as there was, but all people who like these wise men respond on the basis of faith will be invited to be a part of this kingdom. Jesus will later say in Matthew 8 verse 10 and following that when Jesus heard him, he was amazed and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you in no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from East and West and will eat with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is no longer reserved for an exclusive group of people, but for all people who respond like these wise men on the basis of faith and who will respond to Jesus by worshiping him. In fact, Jesus will offer a warning to the Jewish people in Matthew 12, 41 and following the people of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the proclamation of Jonah and see something greater than Jonah is here. Jonah goes to the Ninevites who, by the way, are Gentiles and he calls them to repent. And guess what happens? They repent. And that is to the shame of the Jewish people who God has constantly been calling them back to him who refuse to repent. So the Ninevites bring shame upon the Jewish people. And yet one greater than Jonah is here. And then the text goes on and it says, the queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to listen to the wisdom of Solomon and see something greater than Solomon is here. And once again, you have a Gentile coming into the land where God's king is to, to, to validate the wisdom that is there. And now Jesus says one greater than Solomon is here. And the question is not what ethnicity do you have? question is not what is your religious background the question is do you believe the claims that jesus makes about who he is the messiah the son of god the wise men represent those who respond to jesus by accepting him and by worshiping him but the road and the pathway is now set for a different reaction to jesus one of rejection and persecution matthew chapter 2 verse 13 now after they had left an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. The wise men's search has now ended and a new search begins and it is now Herod who searches for him. And initially Herod had said, hey, I want to tell me where he is because I also want to go and pay him homage. I also want to worship him. But now his true motives come out. Herod seeks him in order to do what? To destroy him. And you have got to realize that if this were a competition between two people, no one here would say, I bet Jesus comes out victorious against Herod. On the one hand, you have 
a baby, a most likely teenage mother, and a father against all the power of the Judean Empire. Who do you think is going to get their way? They're going against the man who history calls Herod the Great. The man who had been leading for 37 years had ruled as the king of the Jews. Herod would have been seen in his times as, as a visionarian, like a Steve Jobs or an Elon Musk, a person with the power of the presidency, and a person with the shrewdness of a serial killer. Who do you think is going to say, be saved, and who do you think is going to be destroyed? Herod's reign over those 37 years basically is broken up into equal thirds of what that reign looked like. The first third of his reign, he was constantly trying to secure and consolidate his power. Everybody knew that politics was a kind of a life or death game. It was blood in and blood out. In his attempt to secure the throne, there were two um, political and military uprisings where two of Herod's three brothers were killed because that's what happens in the middle of this contest for power. And yet Herod was persistent and eventually secured his rightful place on the throne. The next third of his life uh, of his kingship was uh, a time of impressive uh, building and a massive time of prosperity. He built theaters and, uh, and roads and temples. And in fact, um, his most kind of stunning thing that he built was the temple there in Jerusalem that you remember when the disciples came, they said, look at these stones, how large they are. They are so impressed by what Herod has built. And then the last third of Herod's rule was full of tumultuous domestic troubles. Herod had 10 wives, at least 16 male heirs, and everybody wanted his throne. Six times during that last third of his kingship, he changed his will. And if you, were, if you were one of his sons and it was a good day, you would simply be cut out of his will. But if he was having a bad day, he would have you killed. And so three of Herod's sons are killed during this time because he wants to protect the throne. In fact, when Herod was on his deathbed, he had, he, he had ordered that all of his sons, other than the ones who would rule, would be executed. Because he is going to do whatever is necessary to protect and consolidate his power. And it's that Herod. That Herod with the political, the military power. Who's trying to destroy just a little baby boy with his mom and his dad. Who do you think is going to win that battle? Here's what Herod did. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise man, he was infuriated. And he sent and he killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. And yet we know, despite all of Herod's shrewdness and his persistence, Jesus survives. How does Jesus survive? Jesus survives because of God's providential care. Each and every geographic movement in Matthew 2 is attributed to God's protection and his oversight of Jesus. The angel of the Lord will come and will tell Joseph where he needs to go and when he needs to move. And no matter what Herod does, Herod will find himself behind, not able to catch up to the insight into the wisdom of God. And each one of these moves that is made, Matthew reminds us that this is a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies and scriptures. One of the most interesting of the prophecies comes in Matthew 2:23 when he arrives in Nazareth. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that he had been spoke so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called 
a Nazarene. And I'll give you a little bit of a homework. Um, go home and find out where the Old Testament scriptures say he will be called a Nazarene. It's going to be a tough job because it doesn't. But there is something unique about what Matthew does here is this is the only of the four quoting of scripture where Matthew says, according to the prophets, plural. He is not referring to a specific prophet, but he's referring to a prophetic theme. Now to be called a Nazarene is not a compliment. Remember we talked about last week, Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So if somebody calls you a Nazarene, they're not complimenting you. They're not making an effort to be nice. And so this, this fact that Jesus will be called a Nazarene is this prophetic theme that he will be rejected. That he will be outcast. That he will be mocked and forgotten by the people. Matthew is picking up on this theme of rejection. Jesus himself will speak of his rejection in Matthew 21, 42. When he said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this was the Lord's doing. And it is amazing in our eyes. It is the theme of rejection that was the toughest pill for the Jewish people to swallow about the Messiah. Conquest, they could buy that. But rejection, crucifixion of the Messiah. There are so many who oppose that. They oppose it so passionately that they will persecute those who claim to abide by those teachings. That's what we find in the beginning of the book of Acts. But Matthew is forcing his readers to make a decision. There is no seven option for those who follow Jesus. You can either be on the side of Jesus, accept his claims and worship him, or you must be adamantly opposed to him and his claims. And so Matthew forces them to make a decision. But let's be honest. Today we have a nice middle road. We live in America, 2021, where we have the option to be complacent or casual disciples. There are very few people that I have ever met who have said, my job is at stake if anyone finds out I'm a Christian. There are very few people that I have met who have said, I hide all the Bibles in my house because if anybody sees that I have a Bible, I might be mistreated. There are very few people who believe that if they were put on a bracelet that said, what would Jesus do? That they might not make it home that day. There are very few people who are forced to make a difficult choice about Jesus. But is the middle road option a real legitimate option? Or is it simply an option that is presented to us by the evil one? That you can have Jesus and you can stand in the middle and when it's safe, you can tell people you follow him. And when it's dangerous, you can tell people you don't. Jesus makes it very clear that a choice must be made. Matthew chapter 4, verse 10, when he was tempted to bow down to Satan, Jesus said, away from me, away with you, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Our culture will say you can serve God and lots of other things. But it is only the word of God that will say you must make a choice. Which is the very thing that Matthew is doing. Matthew chapter 1, Jesus says, this is who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. And Matthew 2 asks us the question, so what are you going to do about it? You have two choices. Number one, you can accept that he is indeed the Messiah. And therefore you worship him. Or number two, you can reject him. You can be against him and all that he does. 
But Matthew makes the case and invites us to believe, to make the good confession, that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. If you have not yet made that choice, this morning there will be an opportunity. I'll be in the back. Some of our elders will be in the back. If, if you want to come away from that safe territory and, and, and clearly and explicitly proclaim Jesus to be the Messiah, you're willing to be baptized in the waters of baptism to show that you're willing to give up your old way of living. That's the kind of a call and confession that Matthew is calling each of us to. But before we stand and sing, I want to offer a word of blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn towards you and give you peace. And as we head into the world, we head knowing that we have the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. If you want to respond in any way this morning, I invite you to come and find us in the back while we stand and sing this next song together.